Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. First, a little something from our network of podcasts at MaximumFun.org. Hello, I'm Judge John Hodgman. And I'm bailiff Jesse Thorne. Can you force your girlfriend to listen to heavy metal music? Is a machine gun a robot? Is it okay to take coupons out of the garbage if you're Canadian? What should you do if your parrot attacks your husband? Can you prove that Crank 2 is a good movie? Only one man can decide. Judge John Hodgman. If you have a case for the judge's court, visit MaximumFun.org slash J.J. Ho. If you just want to listen in, find us on the web or free in iTunes. All right, that's that. Now I just want to say a few words about our sponsor, Stamps.com. You know, to make the most of your workday, it's important to eliminate unnecessary tasks like going to the post office. And everything you do at the post office, you can do right from your desk with Stamps.com. Stamps.com is so quick and easy to use. You buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. They'll send you a digital scale. You plug it into your computer. It instantly calculates the exact postage you need for any letter or package. Stamps.com will help you decide the best class of mail. You will never have to go to the post office again. We use Stamps.com at risk and the story studio and we love it and right now you can use our promo code RISK for this special offer it's a no risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes the digital scale and up to $55 free postage so don't wait go to stamps.com before you do anything else click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk that's stamps.com enter Now here's the show. 
kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Eric Blood behind me now. What we're calling today's episode The Sweet Hereafter, because on this episode we have two longer radio-style stories from two fascinating men who found themselves kind of staring into the abyss, situations in which they were facing the greatest change of all. I'm going to start with a man who's been on the show before. I mean, he's actually been a character in some of my stories. This is my good friend Jefferson. Both of us will be teaching at Kink Camp this summer. Uh, that's an event called Fusion, and you can find out more at darkodyssey.com. So let's get right to it. This is Jefferson with a story we call Valentine's Day. My girlfriend and I decided that this Valentine's Day would be kind of quiet. It was a Thursday night, and the next day we'd be getting up very early to get in a car with this lesbian couple we know, and we'd be driving down to Washington, D.C. for an event called Winterfire. It's an annual kink convention, and every year I go down and I teach a few classes, including this year a class on how to throw an orgy. And then later that day, I would throw an orgy. I caught wind, though, of a study that was being done for HIV testing for gay and bisexual men. And not only would it take care of your testing, but you get paid for participating in the study, $25. So I'm bisexual, so I qualify. But I contacted them and said, would you also extend this to women, uh, like a woman who has sex with bisexual men? We figured we would get tested, each make $25, and would go blow that on dinner someplace, and that would be our Valentine's Day. So we went to the place, it's right off Union Square, and we met with the counselor, Herberto. We talked to him together. He ran us through some of the standard questions you ask somebody who's going to get tested, like, if results come back in a bad way, would you hurt yourself? Or how, how, how do you feel like you've been at risk? And we answered these questions honestly and in each other's company. We described our relationship as open. We each have sex with other people. We both know this. Uh, she knows I'm bisexual. And we told him about the event we were going to go to the next day. He was very interested in this. It seemed like we had a sort of a kinky counselor, and that was fine. If We felt very much at ease talking to him. So then we went into the lab, uh, pricked our fingers for the rapid HIV test, and then the results came in. And he sat us down and he said, I have uh, some news for you. One of your results came back non-reactive, and one of them came back reactive. And looked at me and said, yours is reactive. And I thought, I have HIV. And Kate said, are you sure? I mean, is this possible this is a false positive? And he said, no, these tests are accurate 99.8% of the time, but I'll be happy to do it again. And she said, would you do it again? And I sat quietly just listening to this. And he pricked my finger again, took the test over, and Kay went to watch him. And he explained how these tests are a little like a pregnancy test. If it's non-reactive, you get like one stripe. If it's reactive, you get two stripes. And it had two stripes. So he said, what we're going to do now is we're going to do a blot test. It's a little more definitive. You have to wait a week for these results, but it's a little more definitive. So he 
pricked my finger again and smudged it on a card in five different places and said that I would be contacted in a week. The next thing we had to do, though, was even though Kay was non-reactive, we had had sex in the preceding 72 hours. So we gathered together somebody else who works there, and the four of us went immediately to an emergency room where we waited for a long time for Kay to get another blood test done. She was still non-reactive. And to be put on uh, post-exposure prophylactics, which is a, a few pills you take. And the plan was that she would take these pills twice a day for the next month and then continue to get tested for three to six months to see if she had been exposed. For me, the next step was just to wait a week and come back in, get the results, and get started on the whole process of entering into treatment for HIV. It was after midnight when we finally got home. We didn't go to dinner. I called my friends to say we wouldn't be going down to Winterfire. We just were not in a frame of mind to be around a lot of people in a sexual environment, and we spent that weekend at home. It was as trying a time as it could be because, first of all, curiously, I, I, I wasn't upset, upset. Like, I wasn't crying. I think I was shocked. She would talk about it, and she would cry, and she would ask me questions, and I kept finding myself taking care of her. And she would sometimes say, I can't believe you're having to take care of me when you just found out you're HIV positive. And I, I said, it really helps, uh, you know, that I can do something about you. And I was worried, sick about her possibly being infected and the possibility that I had infected her. But the question that she would ask, which is a question that anybody would ask, is like, how did this happen? How did I become infected? And I, I was due for a test, and I hadn't been tested in a year. And in my circles, you really should get tested at least twice a year, probably quarterly. But in that preceding year, yes, we have an open relationship, and yes, I'd had sex with other people, but not like I have in years past. I just haven't, you know, for whatever reason, I just haven't been all that active. Have I had sex with people at events? Sure. Have I hooked up with guys? Yeah. But I always do it safely. So there was never... Anything I could look at and say like, oh my God, there was this one time I did this thing, I knew better, or I changed my practices, or this thing happened. We talked about this with a counselor, and he said, everybody, everybody asked that question, how did this happen to me? And that's the wrong question. The right question is, what do I do next? How do I treat this thing? You know, we know the causes of HIV being spread, and sometimes the science is what it is, and sometimes it just happens. Some people are lucky and some people aren't. And maybe that's what's happened for you. During that week, Kay and I talked a lot. We had the weekend together, just all the time together. And I think I was numb most of that time. I think her responses, people respond the way they do. Her responses were like all over the place. She would think one thought and be sad about it and think the next thought and be sad about that. And they'd be different. And she would express these thoughts. And I was often responding by saying, you know, I just, I'm just not ready to think about that yet. 
She would wonder, I guess we're never going to have sex again. And I'd say, I, I can't really think about what that means. I think if we want to have a sex life, we'll find out what that is. But I don't know what that is right now. I was thinking as somebody who's HIV positive, do I feel comfortable having sex with somebody who's not HIV positive, much less the woman I'm in love with? I don't want to put her at any risk. But she would also think, like, maybe this means that we're going to be something closer to best friends than than lovers if the sexual component is is missing. Maybe she would have another boyfriend at some point and I would just be the sort of neutral, loving figure in her life. She could look at the spectrum of things that she had hoped for in her future, kind of abstractly, maybe one day she wants to have kids. I have kids already. She could look at that and say, it's... It's not that I wish you ill, she would say, but, you know, you're lucky. You've already done so many of the things that if if I'm infected, I now have to worry about. I wanted to comfort her as she had these thoughts, and I wanted to listen to the things she was saying, but I was not in a place where I could really fully fathom what was happening to me. I knew that I needed to hunker down for the next three to six months and just be sure she's okay before I could really think about what's happening for me, I'm probably about to get on a whole lot of medication. I was at the beginning of a, of a really arduous journey, just the paperwork alone, much less the, uh, the infection itself. But, you know, I have a public sex life, and I'm a sex educator, and I, I write about my sex life in blogs, and I tell stories about sex. And I knew that if, now that I had HIV, that I would have to somehow or other address that publicly. Maybe it would become something I talked about as a sex educator, like things that HIV positive people can do around sex that's sex positive. I knew I wanted to do that to get the word out to people that being HIV positive is not the end of your life and isn't the end of your sexuality and it's not the end of your sensuality. There's still so much that you can do that's pleasurable. And I could see that my more public sex life with people that I meet at events and stuff uh, was going to be very different. In the in the world in which I work, in the the sex positive community, what you do is when you're going to get involved with an activity with somebody, you say a few things. You say, these are my limits and my boundaries. Uh, these are my hopes and my expectations, my fantasies. And here's my STI status in the most recent time I was tested. So I knew that I would be walking into situations and saying... I would like to do this fun thing with you at this orgy. You should know that I'm HIV positive. And that would just be the new reality of of my life. But I also knew that the minute I was public about this, there'd be those people who would say terrible things about me. And the one thing that I just dreaded was that, you know, I'm bisexual. And from the beginning of the AIDS crisis, there's been this pernicious awful stereotype about bisexual men that we're the carriers. We take HIV and AIDS from the gay community, which is where it's quarantined, over to the straight community, which should otherwise be safe from this stuff. So I grew up with that stereotype around my sexuality, and I've done what I can in teaching classes and stuff to combat it. But here's a case where I'm going to be that stereotype. I'm the HIV-positive bisexual man who infected his girlfriend, or somehow she escaped infection, but Who's surprised that I got it? You know, no one, because I can say that I'm not taking 
undue risk, then I'm having safer sex, but I'm probably lying. You know, I can't be trusted anymore to be telling the truth. But there was no way that I could have HIV privately. It was a dreadful part of that time, the expectation that there'd be a time when I had to tell somebody other than Kay. Kay was in the room with me when I found out, thankfully. I never had to tell her. But I would have to tell other partners that I've had since the last time I was tested. And there was no getting around that. I could look at it logically and think, you know, it's not what it once was. These days, people who are treated do okay. And there are people walking around who've had it 30, 40 years. I'm 49 years old. If I live 30, 40 years with HIV and I die from it somehow, that's how I died. You know, that's just going to be my reality. It's not like it was 20 years ago. When I first moved to New York in 1990, one of the things I was most looking forward to was spending time with my high school boyfriend, Donnie. He and I had had sex quite a lot in high school. And I'd come up to New York now and then and see him. He left Alabama the minute he graduated high school, came up to New York to start working as an actor, living life as an open gay man in a way he couldn't where we grew up. I would come see him now and then, and I came up in 1990 to move here, and he came to help. He looked really scrawny, but he was a skinny kid anyway. I was talking to a mutual friend of ours about a week or two after I moved here. We were having coffee someplace. She said, you know, after I leave here, I'm going to go see Donnie in the hospital. Do you want to go? And I said, Donnie's in the hospital? What happened? Knowing full well what the answer would be. I was hoping she'd say I'd been hit by a truck or something, but no, he had AIDS. And he hadn't told me. So I went with her to the hospital, and, and he was embarrassed that I found out that way. He'd wanted to tell me, but, you know, hadn't had time yet, didn't want to tell me long distance. For the next two years, the first two years I lived in New York from, I guess I was 26 and 27, I was in graduate school, working, living with my girlfriend, and every day doing something to take care of him. Moving him from house to hospital to hospice. Uh, he had no insurance. He had benefits that he could collect. Um, when he was in the hospital, I would go collect the benefits because we bear some physical resemblance. And so I would be collecting his medical, his unemployment, and all the other things. And we, a couple of his friends and I, made all the medical decisions for him as his health deteriorated, as the dementia set in, which was the worst of it, in lieu of his family, because his family wasn't here. His mom and sister would come up when things were dire, but then they would have to go back. The day he died was a little bit of a relief, actually, for all of us who'd been dealing with it day in and day out, and it had been torturous for him towards the end. And to some extent, my education on HIV ended there in 1992, and I was happy for it. I knew way too much about it. I was too involved with the politics of it through ACT UP. I was too involved with the day-to-day -day stuff, with watching my friend die, helping him. And so when I was diagnosed, there were some things to learn, but I wasn't ready to apply myself to learning. Kay would go online and look up things, would print things out, was asking all the right questions, was taking her medication. I just waited. I waited. I had a week to wait to get the results of the second test and get started on what my course of treatment would be. The day the test came back, they contacted me and I went in. Our counselor, Herberto, sent me down in the lab. I went in by myself this time. 
And he said, I've been doing this since I was 13 years old. Your test came back negative. This has never happened. And my first thought, <laughs> of all the questions that were in my head, the first thing that came out of my mouth was, you've been doing this since you were 13? How have you been doing this since you were 13? Uh, and he explained that he'd been an activist as a teenager, and so he's been around it his whole life, and no one ever, ever gets tested reactive on the HIV rapid test and then comes back negative on the Western blot test. So I texted Kay that I am more definitively negative than I am positive. Her Herberto gave me another test. He drew blood and vials and said that this test, which is a little less conclusive than the second one, would test for my DNA for the virus. Um, but they would do this as a follow-up, and I'd have another week to wait for that. That week passed a little more joyfully than the preceding and came back. They sat me down with a someone at the clinic and, and the counselor, Heriberto, and pulled out the paperwork and said, here's the results of this test, you're negative. Here's the results of this test, you're negative. Here's the result of this test, you're negative. You're negative. You don't have to worry about this anymore. We're a little concerned that you fall into that 0.2% of people who test false positive. The reasons for that are sometimes that someone's had a flu shot or someone's pregnant or for some other reason their antibodies are in turmoil you're fighting some kind of infection so apparently there was some reason valentine's day that my antibodies were trying to send me a message about something they gave me the name of another clinic and i was supposed to go get tested for whatever it is it's not going to be hiv they said it could be something like lupus it could be lyme disease it could be something that was temporary that you experienced i don't know what it is all I know is that I had HIV for a week. I was resigning myself to what this new life would be like. And to her great credit, my girlfriend was amazing throughout that and was there with me and was planning to go forward in her life with me. Relationships have all kinds of tests. That's an enormous one. Once again, it is fresh and it is fruitful if I win, but if I lose, ooh, I don't know. I'll be tired, but I will turn and I will go. Only guessing till I get there, then I'll know. Oh, I will know. And all the children walking home past the factories can see the light shining in my windows I write this song to you And all the cars running fast along the interstate Can feel the love of the radiates Illuminating what I know is true All will be well Even after all the promises you've broken to yourself me how, but only time will tell. This is Risk. It's a Gabe Diction. 
the, <laughs> the Gabe Dixon band behind me now. And uh, that was recommended to me by Risk Music intern Sarah Irvin. Listen, the coaching that I do to get these stories out of people that you hear here on Risk is the same sort of coaching that I do at the Story Studio. Some of the other faculty members are people from whom I've learned quite a lot from myself as well. And you know, the last time I taught a storytelling for business workshop here in New York, a wealthy guy from Wall Street came up to me at the end of the workshop and he said, you know, you're sitting on a gold mine here. And I thought, <laughs> that's the fifth time someone has used that exact phrase to describe the story studio. It's just a regular thing. I teach a storytelling for business workshop, and at the end of it, some super successful Wall Street guy walks up and says, you're sitting on a gold mine here. Well, Risk and the Story Studio, we are a startup. We are a, an entrepreneurial venture, and we are still quite new and fledgling. And you know what? We are still looking for a partner. We are still looking for that business whiz to be the Roy Disney to my Walt Disney, <laughs> or maybe to be the Hillary Clinton to my Bill Clinton. Someone with serious business savvy, a real entrepreneur, to partner up here and help us steer this ship. So contact us at kevin at risk-show.com. Another thing I want to express is that, you know, it's such a healing thing it's such a cathartic thing to hear these stories on this show, but I feel like we could hear more often from folks in society that maybe we haven't heard so much before on the show. If you happen to, say, work at a shelter for battered women or work with at-risk youth or maybe you know someone who uh, is in a methadone program somewhere, or someone who's on parole and trying to reconstruct their life. Perhaps people who have committed terrible crimes or had terrible crimes committed against them. Or just people who have weathered the, the toughest stuff that life has to offer. Reach out to me. Because here at Risk, we really do want to help people share their stories. And some people's stories are especially precious because of how difficult a thing they've been through, or how underrepresented out there in the media that sort of person might normally be. Okay, our next story comes to us from a truly extraordinary man. I am tremendously honored to have him on the show. Christopher Ryan is the author of Sex at Dawn, the giant New York Times bestseller, award winner. Chris wrote the book with his wife. And it's about monogamy. It's about how if you dig deep enough into archaeology and anthropology and biology and psychology and history, you begin to realize that monogamy is actually not in human nature. Just not at all to say that monogamy is a bad thing. But that perhaps the best way to make it work is to be mindful that, in fact, it goes against the grain. Or you could just be a rigorously honest slut like me. 
But this story is about something else entirely, and it speaks for itself, and I've spoken too long here. So without further ado, here is Mr. Christopher Ryan with a story we call Outside the Comfort Zone. I was on track to do a PhD at Oxford in literature and then be a tenured professor somewhere by the time I was 30. But I found a loophole in the student handbook that allowed me to skip my junior year of college and still graduate on time. So I skipped the year to save my parents' tuition money and I went to Alaska. I hitchhiked from New York to Alaska. During that experience, I met so many amazing people that had no fucking clue who Nietzsche was or Joseph Conrad or Emerson or Thoreau or all these people that I was studying, the stuff that was so important to me. And I sort of looked back at my friends who were all these, you know, verified geniuses and realized they were sort of assholes and that I didn't really want to be like that. I mean, they were good to me. They were kind to me, but they would have been real assholes if any of these people had stumbled into their world. And here I was stumbling into this other world, and I was being welcomed and assisted, and people were taking me home and feeding me and letting me sleep on their sofa. And I was welcomed into their lives in a way that my friends wouldn't have welcomed other strangers into their lives. So I had this sort of midlife crisis at 20 and realized that I was going in the wrong direction. And so what I said was, until I'm 30, I'm not going to commit to anything. I'm just going to travel around the world, have adventures and let life do what it will to me. I was just talking with a friend about that last night, actually, a guy who'd made a lot of money. We were talking about travel because he'd made a bunch of money and he he said, now what do I do? I thought this would make me happy and instead I'm just lost. I was saying to him that the thing about money is money buys you comfort, but comfort is numbness. The meaning of life and the interesting things that happen in life, the surprises in life are things that happen when you can't afford to be comfortable, when you're backpacking as opposed to flying on your private jet to a five-star hotel. You know, that's when you meet the interesting people, when you're hitchhiking. Of course, you got to stand by the side of the road and deal with Jesus freaks and rapists, but you're going to meet some really interesting people along the way. And that's what you have to pay for it. And if you can avoid paying for it, most of us will avoid it. Most of us will opt for comfort. But that's a fatal mistake because what protects you from inconvenience also removes you from life. When my life was so full of change, because I was traveling... And again, I was marking the travel by full moons. 
Like I remember in India, I was in Kashmir on uh, Dal Lake in Srinagar, and it was a full moon. And I thought, okay, so let's see, I want to be at the Taj Mahal for the next full moon. So I, you know, went traveling, blah, blah, blah. I, a month later, I'm at the Taj Mahal for the next full moon. And I look back and say, that was a month? That feels like years. I think of all the people I've met, all the things I've seen, all the experiences, all the surprises, all the, it was just so much packed into that one month. And that's what gave me the sense that like the length of your life isn't measured in years. It's measured in experiences and friendships and surprises and discomforts. And, you know, that's what measures time because time is a measure of change. So when this experience in Tikal happened, I was 27. It was the full moon of April in 1989. And my girlfriend, Anna, met me in Guadalajara, and then we traveled together from there. In fact, just a couple months before that, we had been at Monte Alban near Oaxaca, which is another amazing um, complex of ruins We'd been there for a full moon, and I had some LSD with me, and we met some people in Oaxaca and invited them to join us, and five or six of us went up and spent the full moon night there tripping and having a pretty bizarre experience there. So we decided to repeat the experience at Tikal, and one of the things that I very much respect about hallucinogens is their ability to remove cognitive filters. And I think that's why they're so important as teaching tools in many traditional societies and probably why they're so forbidden in our society, you know, because they do tend to reveal truths that we spend all our energy and time trying to deny and avoid. They bring it right in your face. And so that can be terrifying for people who are uh, very invested in their denial, or it can be extremely liberating for, you know, someone who just needs a nudge to sort of get through the fire and get out on the other side. So my relationship with hallucinogens in general, I felt was very respectful, and I would take them in sacred places in order to absorb more of the experience of being in that place. You know, that was one of the things that I tried to use them for. And so that's why we use them there in Tikal, because it's this Mayan ruin. So it's a magical place. It's a fascinating place, full of all sorts of interesting energy. Just the feeling of being in the ruins of a massive city that has been, you know, just overtaken by jungle for the last thousand years or 1500 years is, is, you know, wow. You know, it's like, imagine being in Manhattan 1500 years after it's over, you know, it's like that, but even more so because it's jungle. Fabrizio and Solange didn't know that Anna and I were going to take the acid. And we never mentioned it to them. But we took the acid maybe an hour before we would be at the top of the temple so that we'd be tripping by the time we got up there, but we'd still be more or less 
reliable to you know climb over all the boulders and rocks and the roots and these um, pipe ladders that are drilled into the side of the temple. And we finally got up to the platform where people hang out. And you're above the tree line as well. So you're looking down at the lush jungle tree line below you and you hear the howler monkeys. It was a little before dusk uh, when we set off. So we got up there and the moon starts to rise just as the sun's setting. And then above that was this huge bank of clouds, thick storm clouds. You could see rain falling in the distance. And the setting sun illuminated a, a rainbow in the rain that was falling in the distance. It's really beautiful. Anna and I are tripping pretty strong at this point. And Fabrizio and Solange said, yeah, we're going to go back to the campsite because it's just going to be dark up here for another three or four hours. And Anna and I weren't feeling like doing any walking at this point. So we said, yeah, we're just going to hang out here. You guys go ahead. But I went over to the edge of the, the ledge to hold a flashlight for them because they were going down this ladder that was probably 30 feet straight down the side of the temple. And then they got to the bottom of the ladder and said, okay, we'll see you back at the campsite. I said, yeah, okay, see you later. And I turned to step to go back to Anna, and that's when I felt this sting, this bite or something on my foot. And I shone the light down, and I saw this scorpion running up the wall. And then I looked on the wall, and there were others. There were four or five I saw just, like, you know, slittering around on this wall. It's like, holy shit, this whole temple is covered with scorpions. And luckily, I didn't jump when it bit me, because if I had jumped, I would have gone over the ledge, and be, I would have been dead for sure. It was 30 feet down to rock. And it stung me on my little toe. I was like an idiot. I was wearing sandals in the jungle, you know, real smart move there. And I went back to Anna, and I said to Anna, hey, I just got bit by a scorpion, you know, and be careful because they're all over the place here. She said, well, is that dangerous? And I said, I don't know. By this point, a lot of people had left, right, because now it was pitch black. But there were these two guys sitting over on the ledge. And we walked over to them, and they were Italian, it turns out, didn't speak any English. But Anna spoke Spanish. She was Puerto Rican. She spoke Spanish so they could communicate. And she said to them, you know, hey, do you guys know anything about scorpions? And my boyfriend just got bit. They said, no, what, no, well. And, and so these guys were involved in our situation suddenly. And while we're talking with them, this Guatemalan guy comes up the ladder. Uh, he's like a night guard. He's got this old bolt action rifle you know i have no idea what this guy is doing up there like what he's going to shoot from the top of this temple in the jungle yeah I don't, I don't know but anyway he's stationed there so we go over to him and anna says to him in spanish do you know anything about the scorpions are they dangerous and he says si son letales they're lethal anna immediately started crying and the italian guys were very everyone was upset and going through their own individual reactions and my feeling was i needed to get down from the temple because there was no way anyone could carry me down you know we'd come up a series of ladders and all sorts of very awkward 
climbing over roots and boulders. And this wasn't the sort of place where you'd get a helicopter coming in and airlifting you or something. We were days from the nearest hospital. So I initially just sort of felt I need to focus on getting myself down before this becomes impossible for me to move or something. Anna was very upset. From my perspective, inconveniently so. I, I'm sorry to say. I mean, I, I I felt like I couldn't afford to really be very compassionate at that moment. I just felt like I need to do what I need to do. And so one of the Italian guys said, okay, look, I'll stay with Anna. You guys go ahead. For a while, I, I was sort of judgmental, honestly, of her not being more supportive or, or of not keeping her shit together more or whatever. But, you know, A, she was tripping. So, you know, you got to give her the benefit of the doubt there. And B, in later years, I look back and I said, you know, it's probably a lot harder to see someone you love dying than to die yourself. The thing she was thinking about how she's going to call my parents or, your, you know, how she's going to deal with all this in many ways was probably more upsetting than the things I was thinking. I started going down the ladder and with this Italian guy and working our way down toward the jungle floor, probably took us 20 minutes or so to, to get all the way down. And I remember someone telling me there were some American archaeologists who were working there, investigating the temples and the ruins and stuff. And I thought if anyone's going to have an anti-venom, I didn't know, know if there was an anti-venom, but if anyone would have it, it would be these American archaeologists. So I need to find them. So we finally got down to the floor. And by the time we got down to the floor, I could feel the poison running up my leg. It was like a burning chili pepper sensation running up along the bone of my leg. And when it got to the top of a muscle, it would freeze the muscle. So by the time we got down to the bottom, my leg was pretty much stiff all the way above the knee. So I was sort of, you know, dragging my leg along and we're walking through this jungle and I remember all these amazing glowing insects and centipedes and, you know, bugs that would just fly, you know, big bugs flying by. And they're all glowing in this iridescent green sort of light. Very strange experience of the jungle. And of course, we got lost because there are no signs or anything. They're just pathways going from temple to temple. And that's when... I had time to think about what I was going through. And that's, I mean, I, it was so strange because there I was walking with this Italian guy and I was saying what I believe to be my last words. And this guy didn't speak a word of English. You know, he, he didn't understand a word I was saying. And I remember he would like put his arm around me or, you know, touch my back or something. And I, I was crying part of the time. I, I, I don't remember. But I was laughing, too, because I, I remember thinking this is so funny. You know, I'm dying. I'm saying my last words to this guy who has no fucking clue what I'm talking about. And I've never seen his face because... When we went over to talk to them, it was already pitch black. I didn't shine the flashlight in their faces. This whole thing happened without ever seeing his face. And I guess he'd never seen mine either. So we were walking through this darkness together, sharing this incredibly intimate moment 
<laughs> complete strangers. Honestly, what I felt was anguish because of the pain my parents would have felt. My parents had been so generous and uh, selfless in the way they accepted the crazy shit I was doing and the crazy risks I was taking with my life. And to give them, you know, a dead body in return didn't seem like um, the right way to do it. Once the poison got up to my hip, then my whole right leg was frozen. And then my tongue started to swell. And my throat swelled, so I couldn't swallow. And I guess I was salivating a lot because I was spinning, and my lips were all tingly and weird. But I was sort of disconnected from that. I was observing it. And I thought, this is when the poison's going to get to my heart. And lungs and that'll be when it's over you know if it's freezing my leg muscles and once it gets to my heart muscle that's where it all ends this is when i i really arrived at this moment of peace where i i looked at my life and i said okay i'm 27 years old that's pretty young to be dying but what a way to die this is a cool fucking way to die. You know, my friends are going to hear about this and they're going to raise a glass and they're going to be smiles and there's going to be sadness, but it's going to be like, wow, that guy, you know, he had his fucking adventure. That's what he wanted. He had it. And he, he died doing what he loved. And yeah, and I've been around the world and I've loved beautiful, wonderful women and they've loved me and I've, you know, been paid lots of money to do silly jobs and I had the courage to quit those jobs and go off and do what I wanted to do and I've had a full life. From the moment I stopped being afraid to die, I felt peace, I felt happiness and I even felt pride, I think. I was already looking at it like an incredible gift. But in the meantime, we're walking around trying to find these archaeologists. And we eventually we came out and there's this little parking lot and there was a Guatemalan kid there, maybe 14, 15 years old. And the Italian guy explained the situation to him. And the kid looked at me like, holy shit. Oh, my God. And so he said, come, come. And he took us to this little hut and banged on the door of the hut and nobody answered bang 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 finally a light came on and this guy opens the door and he was like obviously shit-faced like drool on his face and everything so he opened the door and let us in and the the kid said this is the doctor now he's no doctor this guy was you know whatever a medic or i don't know what he was but we went in and he sat me down on a chair and he looked at my foot where the scorpion had stung me and he asked me to describe the scorpion to him. And I told him, yeah, it was two and a half, three inches, whatever, sort of a green gray color. And he said, oh, no, no, this is alacran, not scorpion. Apparently, there are different names for two different similar creatures that we would call in English scorpions. 
but in Spanish, escorpión in Guatemala is a very small red thing that will kill you. But the alacran, which is a bigger gray-green thing, is sort of like a rattlesnake bite or something. It can fuck you up, but it won't necessarily kill you if you don't have heart problems or you're not old or a child or something. So he said, look, if you're still alive now, this bit you two and a half hours ago, you've already passed the most dangerous point. You'll be okay. He gave me a pill, which must have been an aspirin or a Tylenol or something. And he scooped some water out of this bucket he had sitting there and gave it to me. And of course, I knew I'd been traveling a long time. You never drink water out of a bucket in the tropics. But this guy just told me, I wasn't going to die. So I would have done anything he'd said, you know. So I took the pill. I drank the water. We thanked him. And then uh, we went back to the campsite. Anna was at the campsite with Fabrizio and Solange. And uh, they had some beer. And we drank the beer. And we told them the story. And oh, my God, what a story. And by now, the moon had come back out. But we were still under the canopy of the trees. So we could just see the moon through the trees. And I think we had a fire. And... And my tongue continued to tingle for days after that. My tongue and my lips were still tingling. Then we went to this place just maybe an hour south of Tikal. It was a ranch that had been bought by an American couple who adopted a few Guatemalan kids. And they converted the ranch into a guest house um, traveler stop. The guy, his name was uh, Michael Devine, the guy who uh, owned it, was a really sweet, wonderful man. And um, one morning, maybe a week after we'd arrived, I woke up with a really bad headache behind my eyes. I went down for breakfast and I explained to Michael what I was feeling. And he looked at me, he said, man, I think you have hepatitis. And uh, I did. I had hepatitis that I had caught from that fucking jungle doctor and his bucket of water. And uh, I ended up staying there for about a month. I remember lying there and there was a bottle of water next to the bed and thinking, okay, I need some water. And, and for like 10 minutes, gathering the strength to reach out and grab the bottle of water. And then another 10 minutes to bring it back to my chest. And then another 10 to bring it up to my mouth. It was just like I had no energy at all. It was really intense. You know, I, I went through the process of dying without actually dying. What a gift. What an amazing gift. So it's almost like a vaccination, you know, where they give you a weakened strain of the virus so you can survive the real shit down the road. So I kind of felt like that, like, what a great gift, you know, and if a month with hepatitis is what I have to pay, so what? I'll pay it. Whatever I have to pay, I'll pay it. And ever since, I've looked at my life before that night and after that night. That's, that's a separation point in my life where I feel that everything that's happened since then has been gravy. Everything from the full moon of April 1989 is extra.
all for this episode folks this is lord huron behind me now Uh, and for the first time ever risk is going to be in the great city of washington dc on june 29th 2013 we are teaming up with speakeasy dc we'll be at the what is it called the dance the town dance boutique no less remember you can always find out where Risk is happening next live at risk-show.com slash tour. That's where you go to find out about ticketing and all that kind of stuff. Please keep in mind that Risk is listener-supported. We very much rely on help from the people who love our show, financial help. If you go to maximumfund.org slash donate, you can become a member today, and there's a lot of other wonderful things to get out of a Maximum Fund membership. Or you can make a one-time donation there, but be sure to earmark it for risk no matter what you do. MaximumFun.org slash donate to help keep risk running, keep this listener-supported stuff happening. And don't forget, everything you've heard is true. Our workshops at thestorystudio.org are a pure joy. Come take one of our six-week workshops, one of our two-day workshops, one of our storytelling for business workshops, our one-on-one coaching over Skype, and, of course, our custom-tailored workshops that we do for corporations. And there's also our Storytelling for Business Workshop, the video lecture series that you can get and do in your own time online. It's all at thestorystudio.org. Okay, with that, there's just one thing left to say. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
Remember, you can always find out where risk is happening. Hap- <laughs>